All right. Welcome, everybody, to uh, The Torch of Progress. This is the speaker series for Progress Studies for Young Scholars, an online learning program in the history of technology. Uh, Progress Studies for Young Scholars ran over the summer uh, to begin. It, it launched uh, in June as a summer program for aimed at high school students. Uh, and by popular demand, we are keeping it going now on an indefinite basis. It's being offered this fall as an after-school program or as a, a virtual uh, school program for anybody who's schooling at home or, or you know, homeschoolers. And uh, to find more about it, you can go to progressstudies.school. Um, in this speaker series, which is free and open to the public, uh, we've had a lot of um, uh, great folks, um, economic historians, economists, um, uh, techn uh, technology founders, uh, a lot of different uh, folks to, uh, to talk about all kinds of aspects of progress. And you can find those episodes up on our, up on our YouTube channel if you search for Progress Studies for Young Scholars. Um, I am Jason Crawford, your host. I am the author of The Roots of Progress. Uh, where I write about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. And our guest today is Jerry Newman. Uh, Jerry is an active angel investor uh, at his own uh, new venture capital. And he is also an adjunct professor at Columbia, where he teaches about uh, managing technical innovation. So um, he's actually at the intersection of uh, theory and practice, which makes a, a really interesting guest. And, um, you know, maybe that's a place that more people should be. Um, so, Jerry, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. Yeah. Um, let's start right in. I would like to start off by talking about uh, corporate research labs. Um, so if you read, the, uh, read some of the literature about uh, you know, what people have to say about corporate research labs, the general story you seem to hear is that um, they are sort of in decline or that their heyday was, you know, decades ago. We had these great labs like, uh, you know, Bell Labs or uh, Xerox Park or the, the chemical companies like Dow and um, all that stuff seemed to be, I don't know, maybe in the 30s, you know, maybe, maybe kind of stretching to the 60s. But the general message you hear is that they have declined and are, and are not as great as they used to be. So just first off, uh, like, what do you think of that uh, general story arc? Is that, is that true? Do you agree that there's kind of been a decline? It seems that way. That's certainly, you know, if you look at the big corporate research labs, you don't have the Bell Labs anymore. You don't have, um, you know, the Xerox Park. Uh, there's definitely been, you know, fewer big discoveries coming out of the corporate research labs that are left. You know, on the other hand, you, you know, Google does a lot of research still. A lot of the big data stuff has come out of there. So there is still corporate research. Um, it's, I think, less in the public interest than it was, so less uh, exposed to the public, less stuff being given to the public. Um, and I think that's probably true, you know, it, it, but given the fact that there's less exposure in the media or, you know, uh, on purpose, um, it's hard to really know. Hmm. You might have stats that I don't have. Hmm, interesting, no, I don't think I do. <laughs> um, what about, you know, one thing I think about when people talk about this is what about the biotech sector? It seems like they do a ton of research, like I know, research is almost all they do. People don't generally talk about that when they talk about the decline of, of corporate research. Where does biotech fit into corporate research today? Yeah, I think this is interesting, right? Because I have spent my career in the information technology sector and the dynamic in, this, in my sector is very different than the dynamic in the biotech sector. So, you know, in, in my sector, you don't have corporations mainly doing basic research. Um, they're primarily doing commercialization, 
right? So they're, they're taking things that were developed or discovered and making them into products. Where in biotech, if you wanna make a, a new product, you, you almost have to do basic research. Um, well, you know, at least part of it, right? If you, want, if you want a drug to cure, you know, some disease that's not curable or to treat it, then you, you have to do basic research because if you weren't doing basic research, you wouldn't be finding something new. Um, so there's a very different dynamic in biotech. Um, but even, you know, even biotech, I think a lot of the research is still done in universities. You know, the NIH spends a lot of money at universities having people do basic research, which is then often patented and sold to the biotech firms so that they can run with it. Um, but it, it's a very different dynamic there. And, and I think it's different because of the, the characteristics of the way innovation works in biotech versus something like information technology. Yeah. Um, so the, okay, so the story there is sort of that uh, maybe the, some sectors do more basic research just because they have to, or they're sort of forced to by the nature of the, of the industry. I think so. Well, I think we should be careful about saying, well, biotech is this way. Information technology is the other way. There's, there's an awful lot of commercialization in biotech as well, especially when you move away from drug development. You know, drug development itself, I think, um, you know, once there is a discovery about how something works or some pathway in the human body that, you know, it can be uh, addressed to treat something, um, then people create a pharmaceutical for it and they patent it. Right. And so in that sense, the research stops. It's sort of like you do the research, you get to a point where it's viable. And then it, after that, it's all development. The development is primarily internal to whoever has the patent for, on the basic research. Um, so what we see as advances are basic research in biotech. I, I think we don't see the development as much. Although, you know, when you, you think about people talking about making, uh, you know, creating a, a vaccine for the, the virus, you know, for COVID, um, you know, they talk a lot about the basic research, like whether they're testing this or testing that, they're, they're doing these things. That's really development, right? I mean, they, they know how to make a vaccine. There's no new science there. Well, no, I shouldn't say science. There's no, no new basic science there. Um, but a lot of it is this development. And then after that, there's this huge commercialization problem. Like, can you actually make it at scale? And, and I think we, we think of biotech as being that kind of, you know, the scientists in the laboratory trying various compounds, thinking of theories of like, well, here's this pathway. How can I disrupt it to you know, disrupt this disease? We don't think so much about what happens after that, which is still probably 80% of what biotechs do, in certainly in terms of time spent, um, mm -hmm. you know, the development and, and then the commercialization. Uh, yeah. It's certainly not easy. And it's, that's not that different than, say, what DuPont does in chemicals or has done historically, right? There's the, the discovery phase, the research phase, where they find something new like um, uh, Teflon, right? So they, they discovered Teflon, um, invented Teflon. And, and then there was a long, a long period of time after they discovered or invented it before they could commercialize it because they had to figure out what to do with it, how to do it, and then how to do it at scale. And those things can take an awful long time. It took decades for them to do that. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to make a blanket statement about any one industry. You know, it's certainly true in information technology that there is less um, basic research that is then applied that becomes a huge driver of, you know, on its own, right? That you'd say like, oh, this one thing changed everything. Whereas, you know, you could say that without vaccine development, like, you know, this, discovering a polio vaccine changed everything, right? Um, about in that sector. Um, there's not much you can say that has done that in information technology since the transistor or, you know, since the microprocessor. Yeah. 
you know, there's a bit of opinion there, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you, you used a phrase uh, just a little bit earlier. You said something about, oh, they're not doing research, they're doing development. What, what do you, where do you draw the line between those two? What is, what is development versus research? Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit of shorthand, right? I mean, is there really a line? I don't think, you know, there's not a, a bright line. I think it's a, a fallacy to think that there is. Um, but, you know, one way to think about it, or the way, I guess the way that I think about it when I was saying that is, you know, research is trying to discover knowledge, right? To create knowledge, whereas development is trying to put that knowledge to use. So are you, you know, when, when you have biotech researchers, say, going out and trying to find something new, they're trying to create knowledge. And, and while it's use driven, they're, they're thinking about the use while they're doing it. Um, you know, the, the discovering the knowledge is their motivation. Whereas in development, it's like, right, we have this knowledge. How do we put it to use? How do we make it work? Um, you know, I think it was who, who developed the first uh, antibiotic it was Bayer, right? Was it Bayer? No, it was, uh, or BS, BASF. It was one of the um, German chemical companies. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't remember which and one. They were, yeah. I mean, it, that was a complete accident discovering the first antibiotic. They were, it was a dye company. They were looking at different dyes. They found one dye seemed to inhibit the growth of um, uh, bacteria. And then they went through and, you know, like, oh, well, that's interesting. I wonder why, right? Um, and they then developed the first an antibiotic that way. Um, but having done it, then they actually had to say like, all right, you know, now we have to say, well, we've found something that inhibits bacterial growth. Can we turn this into something that's useful, you know, in, in reality? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, we'll come back to that uh, later, I think. Let's, uh, so going back to the sort of corporate research labs, you mentioned a lot of the research is now done in university. Um, uh, that model, I understand, has changed uh, over the last, you know, several decades. Um, so, so tell me a bit about that. Has, has more research been done in university? How has that affected sort of the dynamic with corporate research? Well, I think it's, this is a hard question. And again, this is, I don't think this is a cut and dry question. Um, you, you think about like Bell Labs, right? Bell Labs transistor was invented there. Um, Unix was invented there. The communication satellite was developed there. I think the laser, right? I mean, um, was it the laser, laser? was, um, I don't remember actually, maybe, yeah. You'd be wrong with the laser. They, they, there's a ton of stuff that was developed there. And partly, you know, on the one hand, you could say like, AT&T was a monopoly, right? And they were a government regulated monopoly and they really wanted to be seen as being useful to society as opposed to monopolists, which they were. So some of the spending there was, was around, well, all right, let's do this basic research. People will see all the good we're doing and they'll be more well disposed towards us in, in you know, political terms, right? So there's a bit of a cynical motivation there or at least you could read it as, as a cynical motivation. Um, and certainly when AT&T was broken up, uh, Bell Labs was spun off and became much less of a factor. So there's a, you know, cer certainly a correlation there. Um, but, you know, the, the research they did, and some of it was very basic, like the, like, you know, the inventing the transistor, um, it was really very basic research. They were, they discovered these semiconductors and what they could do, but it was still use directed or in some sense use directed. I'm sure there was a lot of research there that wasn't use directed, but, but, you know, the, um, what's it, the idea factory, right? Where they, the, the, the great book about Bell Labs, they talk about how Bell Labs was, one of the reasons they had so much innovation was that it was this problem rich environment, right? So there were so many problems to solve that anybody who's doing basic research could say, well, what can I use this for, right? I'm, I'm creating this, I've created this transistor. What could it be used for, right? And, and that, that's sort of like bringing together the, 
what you can do or what you have done with what you want to do with it, right? The, the means and the ends, kind of bridging that gap is what I think made Bell Labs such a, a powerhouse in the innovation sector, as opposed to like a research university where you know, the, the researchers typically, or you know, at least canonically, aren't driven by ends, right? People who are, you know, a lot of academics don't think about what is going to be done with their research. They're, they're trying to create knowledge. Um, you know, the idea of like actually seeking out a use, seeking out some way to commercialize your research is often looked down upon outside of engineering schools, right? If you're a, if you're a physicist at a, a research university and saying, well, I'm gonna do this physics so that I can make some money. Um, you know, the environment there is uh, antagonistic to that sort of activity, right? They, they want you to be creating knowledge. That's your job, not creating things, not technologies. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think there's, and I'm not answering your question, but <laughs> as you know, but, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, the, the research being shifted to universities is, is perhaps not so much more research being done at universities as less being done in, in um, corporations. And part of less being done in, in the corporations is that, you know, there was, there has have been for the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, fewer of these big monopolies that have been trying to please the government uh, and please society um, by doing this research and giving it to the public, right? So you know, it's hard to think of anybody who's been a true monopoly for the past 30 years that has felt like they needed to go out and, you know, appease the public by giving them these, you know, research offerings. Um, yeah. And if you don't have that, I mean, the problem with research is that it's difficult to protect, right? It's highly appropriable. Um, so if you look at the appropriability of these things, I mean, like how much money did Bell Labs make from the transistor? I mean, compared to how much money that, how much value the transistor has created, like it rounds to zero, you know, it's, um, and that's because it was hard to protect. They did have patents. They did easy patent to get I, yeah. well, My understanding also was they licensed the patent for yeah. a very modest fee. And that was maybe also part of this kind of, um, you know, we have this special monopoly status and we need to protect it by showing that we are kind of lavishing gifts on, you know, on the country in response, you know, in, in return for getting this monopoly. Um, right. Yeah. And, and I think you know, well, there's, there's that, which is they weren't really trying to make money. Um, but there's also the, the idea that if you're not actually actively working to commercialize your innovations, somebody else will, right? So you have to move pretty quickly. There's, it's not easy to protect these ideas. Most technologies are easy to get around um, and drug development being one of the, one of the few exceptions. Um, you know, all right, you've, you've patented this transistor, but the transistor they patented is not the transistor that's being used these days, right? They, they patented a junction transistor. All computers use MOSFET transistors. Um, I was an electrical engineer at one point in my life. So, you know, it's, this is, but it, it's a different thing, right? So, um, it's easy to get around these basic technology patents often. Um, so you either have to go quickly to commercialize uh, and then, then you, you know, are in the business and you can make money doing it or somebody else will. And so it's difficult to make money because it's easy for other people to appropriate the, the basic ideas um, and use them themselves without paying you. Yeah. Um, one of the thing you hear is that there are, uh... There's more short-term thinking, uh, you know, in companies or on on. I mean, some people blame Wall Street or whatever, and and this is sometimes associated with kind of the decline of corporate research. Do you, do you think that's right? Was there more long-term thinking decades ago in the corporate world? No. Talk about that. What? Because everybody says, oh, company, all public companies, they're all short-term these days. They're managing quarter to quarter. They only care about the next 
quarterly earnings. Like, do you, do you disagree? I do disagree. I, um, you know, I, I think again, you know, look, people think about like the 1950s is basically the time we're talking about, right? Um, the 1950s- yeah, maybe, maybe even further back, 30s, you know, um, 30s, 40s. Uh. Yeah, the 30s are hard to talk about because so much was going on. Um, and the 40s, obviously the same. The 50s are easy to talk about because nothing was going on, right? It was, <laughs> I mean, in terms of business, it was a very stable environment. You know, mm -hmm. they, I read somewhere that, you know, the top 50 uh, stock exchange stocks at, in like the beginning of the 1950s were pretty much the exact same companies at the end of the 1950s. There was not a lot of dynamism, right? Wow. The companies were stable. They didn't, you know, they weren't competing so much. Uh, and this is not obviously not a blanket statement, but you know, in general, so they could think longer term, right? Because, well, you know, I'm doing great. I mean, you know, Google has been able to think longer term for a long time, um, as has Apple. What happens when their revenues don't grow? right? Or their earnings don't grow and their, their stock plummets because they're no longer a growth uh, company. And this has to happen eventually, right? Um, has happened to every other company in the past. Um, at that point, they need to stop thinking long-term probably and start addressing their immediate problems. So I, I think, you know, when you got to 1970 or so when uh, the economy was doing poorly, companies were much more focused on addressing their immediate problems, on trying to get back the, the glamour they had, the growth they had. Um, so I, I think it was I don't know. I don't think that I don't believe in this sort of golden age theory of, you know, oh, remember in the golden age when people used to think long term. I don't think that's true. I think the, the environment was slightly different then, but it wasn't that they were better people. Yeah. But in terms of fix their immediate in terms of fix their immediate problems, I mean, the argument goes something like this, that, you know, maybe it would be best for the long term for companies to invest in some ambitious and, you know, maybe risky research program or some some very long term investment. But uh, that get, that creates an immediate problem for them, which is it decreases their earnings and then Wall Street punishes them and their stock goes down. And, um, you know, so that's that's kind of the argument, right? That, that companies aren't, and I don't know if I buy this myself, but, the, you know, this idea is that companies aren't investing as much for the long term anymore because it hurts their short-term earnings and that hurts their stock price and, and everything's just kind of measured sort of myopically on that. I think, you know, you look at Amazon. I mean, Amazon has spent, you know, for a long time, didn't make any money, right? And they were extremely valuable company making no money. Um, they're still not valued based on their earnings. And it's because the investors trust that they're doing the right thing, right? They, they believe. Um, and that could be said, you know, this is a little more controversial, but for Tesla right now, right? People say, well, you know, on the numbers, this is companies no worth nowhere near what it's trading for. But I believe that they're doing the right thing, that they're heading in the right direction. I trust them, right? And using trust in a sort of business sense, not like personal trust, but I, I trust that they know what they're doing. They're going in the right direction. And, and if you have that kind of trust, then you don't have to worry about quarterly earnings as much. People are like, okay, well, there was a blip, but they're still you know, on the right path. Um, if they don't trust you, then you do. And, and I think uh, you know, once you stumble, people stop trusting you, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I don't know. So uh, I mean, another another uh, argument then is okay, fine, but that really means that um, we only get long term thinking from kind of a small handful of exceptional visionary leaders like Bezos and Musk and so forth, and uh, and even Bezos. You know, if you if you hear the stories about the early days, and by days I really mean decades, you know, decade or or so of Amazon, uh, that. 
I mean, for a long time, Bezos was ridiculed um, and he was completely torn up in the media. And, um, you know, my understanding, uh, Mark Andreessen uh, has told, uh, sort of talked about this is basically Bezos just had a cast iron stomach that he could take any abuse, uh, that he just had this sort of very deep, you know, strength of his convictions. And now, sure, 25, what, almost 30 years later, um, 25 years later, it's been, it's been proven and, uh, you know, people will, now they trust him, right? But it took a decade or two you know, to earn yeah. that trust. And most, maybe, maybe there's only, you know, one founder in a million who can, uh, you know, who can kind of get through that and, and hold on and, and, uh, and ultimately see it through. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is starting to get closer to, you know, my home, which is investing in small private companies um, that are fast growth. And you, know, you, you look at some of those like Amazon or like Facebook or like Google. Um, and they also, the, the founders kept control of the company, right? So yep. even if you didn't like him and the stock price would go down and Amazon stock prices fluctuated pretty wildly over its life, um, there's not much you can do about it, right? You can't, you can't oust Mark Zuckerberg. It's not, you know, there's the, um, the only way to do it is through an act of Congress, I suppose. Um, which seems to be coming. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's, you know, the, uh, the ability to withstand the criticism is more than just an iron stomach. It's also a, a legal position that, that Bezos is in. Um, you know, I, I think looking at Google, we'll see, right? I mean, they, their growth engine is, I think, probably not as much of a growth engine as it was. Uh, their side projects um, have stumbled a bit. You know, I, I think... Uh, None of it turned out to be as valuable as they had hoped. Um, and their, you know, their ancillary products, uh, they don't seem to be introducing a lot of them. So, you know, what happens, and I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm not, I'm not a public stock market expert, so I'm not making predictions about public stocks. Um, I'm just saying that if, if they stop growing, what happens to their founders? Um, do they stay? I mean, they could stay because they have so much control in the company, but they may start losing people, right? People who are paid with stock options. I mean, even now, you know, my students at Columbia, none of them want to go work for Google. They really want to go work for Amazon or, you know, one of the newer companies, but you know, the, the, the top job is not Google anymore. It's, you know, that's not the, the, the premier technolo technological job uh, out there. And it's just, yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't. I don't believe that there's something different about people today who they don't think long term. It's interesting if you read, go back and read um, Kenneth Galbraith's uh, business writing from the 1950s. It's extremely recognizable. The, the criticisms he makes of business people then are very recognizable. You know, they, today as criticisms. Um, you know, I, I do think right now there's probably less dynamism in corporate America, just cyclically. Um, and I think over the next uh, 10 years we'll probably see more corporate research because there's less dynamism, right? So they can go out and, and feel safer about spending the money on corporate research and, and still getting credit for or getting returns on that investment um, because there'll be fewer uh, upstarts taking the research away from them. Um, so I think you'll see it, it'll be a bit more like the 1950s in that sense. Mm -hmm. That's a projection. Yeah. <laughs> it's a prediction. Yeah. Right. We'll see if I'm right or not. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Um, uh, note to the audience, we will, I will start taking questions from the audience in, oh, probably 10 or 20 minutes. 
um, go ahead and drop them in the chat here. Or if you are a student in Progress Studies for Young Scholars, uh, go ahead and ask them in the Slack and I'll try to prioritize some uh, questions from our enrolled students. Um, okay, uh, let's, uh, let's move on to a, a different topic. Um, and some, some of we've already touched on a little bit. You mentioned, you know, we talked about research versus development. I think you mentioned basic and applied. You used the term use-inspired research, which um, I, I recognize from a book you recommended to me, actually, Pastor's Quadrant. Um, uh, all of this is kind of wrapped up in a topic I think of as sort of just like the linear model of, of innovation. Um, what, what is the classic linear model of innovation and uh, like what's wrong with it? Why, why doesn't it really match reality? Yeah, I mean, I think the transistor is a good linear model, right? So the linear model says that there is like, you can divide innovation into several steps, right? There's the kind of basic research, um, the scientific knowledge, which creates some sort of phenomenon, which you can then you know, do research on. You can develop it into a technology, and then the technology is uh, spread out. You know, um, it's uh, uh, dispersed into the world for people to use, right? So it's the the knowledge first, then the use, and then it being you know going out in the world and and uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Distribution. <laughs> Diffusion. Yeah. You Diffusion. Know. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and that's, you know, one thing happens after other. And so with the transistor, there was definitely scientific knowledge. There was scientists who invented the transistor, right? They won the Nobel prize for it. Um, then they, you know, gave it over to people. One of them Shockley went and started a company to make transistors and get, put them into use. And other people, he didn't do a great job, but other people got them out into use because they were obviously useful. Um, mainly, you know, first as amplifiers and then as switches. Um, and then they were diffused throughout the economy. So now there's transistors, you know, it's probably a million, well, there's transistors in your ears. I mean, there's transistors in front of you, right? They're everywhere. Um, so it's, uh, that's the linear model. One step, next step, next step. And, you know, if you go, if you work, if you're at a university or you talk to um, academics, this is the model they like, right? Everything is driven by scientific research. That's the basis on which all technology comes about. Um, now, in reality, you, know, you think about the Wright brothers, right? The invention of flight, powered flight. Um, they weren't scientists, right? I mean, they were learned, but they weren't scientists or even close to scientists, right? They were tinkerers. They were bicycle makers. They you know, had some knowledge from previous people who had tried to do this, but there was no scientific knowledge about how to build an airplane. You know, it, it's funny, I actually recently went and read the um, Wikipedia page on uh, aerodynamics, the study of, you know, of, you know, the airflow over surfaces and whatnot. Um, and if you read the page, which is obviously written by a university professor, um, given the slant, it's basically that flight was a linear model, right? There was this, all this research into aerodynamics, which then influenced what the Wright brothers built um, right. So it was the, the basic research that led to this innovation, this technology of, of the airplane. You know, I, I think you can certainly make that argument, um, but I don't think most people have. I mean, I think if you read the biography of the Wright brothers, um, that's not what they did. They didn't know all this research. I mean, they, they were aware of it. But if there was scientific research that said, here's how you build an airplane, they would not have been the ones to build an airplane. Right. That it wouldn't have been them. Um, it would have been the French, right? Who were very far advanced and had done much more of this research. So the, the, 
you can you say the same thing about the steam engine, right? Thomas Newcomen was not a scientist, the guy who invented the first real steam engine. Um, he was aware of the science that existed, which is basically like their, you know, discovery of the vacuum. Um, but he couldn't, he wasn't able to read most of that research because it wasn't written in English. It was written in Latin or in French. So he didn't get his knowledge from this research. He had this idea and he tinkered until it worked, right? So, um, and then thermodynamics came after that, right? The, the, the science of thermodynamics was, you know, Kelvin came in and said, well, why do these steam engines work? Right. And then he developed the science. So in that sense, like the innovation came before the science versus the transistor where the science came before the innovation. In most cases, I think the two are kind of codependent. Right. So you have some science, you have some tinkering, you have some science, you have some tinkering. They they go back and forth. There's no no linear anywhere. Right. There's all these cycles of feedback cycles of uh, what's happened. Um, if I could tell a quick story, I. Uh, years ago, I joined the board of a company that was making carbon nanotubes. This is when carbon nanotubes were hot. Um, and I uh, had a university professor who was an expert in carbon nanotubes come and do due diligence on the company before he invested. And he showed up and um, I gave him a ride back. This company was up in New Hampshire. Gave him a ride back to New York City. Uh, say I had driven up and I uh, said, so what's going on here? Why can this company make these so much better than everybody else? Um, he said, okay, so carbon is an atom. You know, it has... 14 electrons in its shell or whatever. And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I, I took high school chemistry. I know what carbon is. He's like, oh, oh, good. We can skip the preliminaries. And then he spoke for a full four hours, of which I understood none of it. Uh, until the very end, he said, so really we have no idea why it works. And I said, wait, so what did you do up there? He's like, I was trying to figure out how it worked, <laughs> right? Like this is his research, right? He, was, he wants to know how these things happen. And uh, he was up there like, watching the process. I mean, he verified that it really did work, but he wasn't sure why and he would love to know why, right? So this is, you know, scientists do this, right? They, scientists also tinker, they call it experimenting, but it's, it's not that different than tinkering. Um, you know, this company, the process was good, but not great yet. It wasn't really commercialized yet. Um, and we would go to the board meetings and they'd say, oh, we made this breakthrough improvement. Great, what did you do? We're like, oh yeah, you know, this guy who works for us, he turned up the uh, turned up the hydrogen input just slightly, two percent, and we had this great, you know, breakthrough in, in imp improvement in quality. And it's like, really, why? They're like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, they had no idea. They were tinkering. This, this, and you know, this this person was a great tinkerer. He had just the either some sort of mental model, or he just had the temperament to say, let's see what happens when I turn up the hydrogen by two percent, right? And see what happens. And this guy was a perfect tinkerer and he just had that, you know, a lot of the employees really wouldn't, didn't want to mess with any, anything, but this guy was okay with it. And so he was doing great there, helping them improve the process. And I think this is, you look at someone, someone like Thomas Newcomen or the Wright brothers, they were tinkerers, right? They were willing to try different things and fail most of the time, or, you know, maybe all of the times except one, right? <laughs> um, but they were willing to do that where most people weren't. I mean, so, Sorry, this is maybe a bit of a tangent, but the idea that it's not a linear model, it's a, a lot of feedback, a lot of tinkering. The tinkering adds knowledge to the, the, the pool from which then you know, researchers can say like, here's this whole pool of knowledge. Let me see if I can draw general lessons, build models around this knowledge that can be predictive for the future. Um, they do that, people try to put them to use. Um, they create more data, right? It's, it's definitely a back and forth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So, um 
would you say that, is there a grain of truth in the linear model? Like why do people keep using it? What is there, or what is there that's appealing or, or even sort of, you know, correct about it? Um, there are definitely examples of it having, of that being true. And, and I think there's a certain appeal, both in terms of process, like if you try to understand innovation, it's hard to understand a system of innovation so much as it is, it's much easier to understand a linear process to break it down, right? I mean, all, all of our knowledge at this point in time is, is based on this idea of taking the whole and breaking it down into smaller pieces that we, where we can understand each and then stitching them back together to say it explains everything, right? So like this is, I mean, it, this is just how we do science. You take some big phenomenon, you break it down into small pieces where you can actually do work on each. And then you have all these small pieces, which hopefully if you bring it back together, explains a phenomenon. Um, you know, systems don't work that way. You can't take, you, you can't understand a car, how a car works if you're just given a whole pile of pieces, right? Oh, here's the engine, it, but every, every piece is different. Like, it's a little hard to understand how the engine works looking at it that way. Um, how does innovation work? I don't think there's an easy way to understand it if you break it down into pieces like, well, let's understand the research process. Let's understand the basic science process and then stitch them together. If you do that, you're gonna inevitably come up with the linear process, right? Because it is the simplest possible way of stitching things together. It just happens not to be true. So, mm -hmm. you know, and I think the other thing is that, the, you know, if you went to a corporate research lab, they probably wouldn't talk about the linear process much. Um, the people who talk about the linear process are the people who do basic research, right? The people in universities, right? So if you ask a university, you know, an academic how innovation is done, they're going to come up with something like the linear process because it, it really prioritizes basic research as being the driving factor. And that's, there's a bit of self-interestedness there, I believe. Um, yeah. You know, I, I have a foot in both worlds, right? So I certainly understand the difficulty of trying to figure out innovation as a model uh, when so much innovation is really ad hoc. Um, but, you know, oversimplifying it doesn't do anybody any good either. Yep. <laughs> um, so there's an alternate model proposed. You actually pointed me to this book, uh, Pastor's Quadrant, where he basically says the, the kind of linear model of, um, well, in particular, the sort of linear spectrum from basic to applied research is, um, is wrong. And then instead, we should think of it as, uh, as more of a, a two by two, or, you know, there are kind of two orthogonal axes, right? There's use, uh, is it, is it, in, is the research inspired by use, um, you know, by applications? And then the other axis is sort of, is, um, is there a, he calls it a quest for fundamental understanding. Um, and so, you know, Pasteur's quadrant is actually the intersection of both of those. And, and, and a lot of the research of Louis Pasteur was this way. He was both inspired by use and he was, he was uh, searching for fundamental understanding. Uh, what do you think about this model? Is this better than, than a sort of linear model or a simple basic applied spectrum? Well, I, you know, despite having, you know, making fun of academics, I actually think basic research has a huge place in, in creating innovation. And I wrote about this as, you know, if you think about the kind of basic, discovering basic phenomena, um, you know, the semiconductor is a basic phenomena, right? Um, discovering that has created a huge number of uses. I mean, it has a huge impact, a much larger impact, say, than, you know, discovering, you know, how to put, uh, you know, video on uh, an iPhone, right? I mean, there's, which is not to say that that has no impact. It doesn't, ha doesn't have as much impact, right? Discovering semiconductors has had impact everywhere. I mean, you know, the, um, the, I don't know how you would measure impact if you want to measure it in dollars or, or, or use or whatever, but 
uh, probably much larger than almost anything else, you know, over the past, the last 150 years. Um, electricity may be bigger, right? I mean, there are these basic phenomenon that have huge impact. And if you're not looking for those, but the problem is there's also, they're so far from use, it's hard to make money on them, right? So I do think you need to have people who are willing to do this basic research, even though they're not going to become billionaires, right? I mean, mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, the, the, the reason that we should actually cherish our universities is these people are actually willing to do a lot of the hard work, a lot of the really risky work, right? In, risky in the sense of, well, you may fail, you may discover nothing. Um, you may never be as famous as you had once hoped you would be. Um, the chance of you winning the Nobel Prize is, you know, smaller than you, you know, going in and winning the Super Bowl, right? I mean, it's tiny. Um, so, but they're still willing to do it. Um, because that's their mindset, right? And, and, you know, somebody has to do it because no, no corporate research lab was going to do research into quantum physics, right? There was no clear use for it. There, they'd never make money from it. If they were thought they'd make money from it, it would be, you know, 50 years in the future. Like they're just not going to do it. So somebody has to do that. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't think that this, I, and I actually don't think that that book was making the argument that you should only have that one quadrant where it's use-directed research. I think they were saying that there are different kinds. And I think the, the point I took from that book was there is this kind of basic research, right, that is not use-directed. And then there's this sort of engineering, which is not research at all, but is use-directed. It's taking things you already know and putting them to use, creating technologies. And then there's this kind of amalgam. Um, the, the, there has to be a bridge between the two ends, right? And, and if you can be the bridge yourself, like Pastor could, then that's great because it, it makes it much more efficient. Um, I, I don't think there's a lot of that happening. I think generally it turns out the bridge is teams of people working together or people passing the torch from one to the other and going back and forth. Um, I think in the, the most productive fields, the most productive academic fields over the past 50 years, you'll have the the uh, professors working with corporations um, to see how the stuff is being used and kind of bringing that knowledge back. Um, you know, certainly in computer science, you have computer science professors working with computer companies or software companies um, as consultants or you know, being brought in house for a year and they bring that knowledge back to inform their research, right? It's, it's not a one-way street. Um, it's, not this, it's not this pure ivory tower where nobody leaves, only ideas leave. It, it's a two-way street. Yeah. I think what the uh, what the the book Pastor's Quadrant the uh, the author uh, Stokes Donald Stokes was arguing I think you're right he was not arguing that there should only be Pastor's Quadrant or you know only the combination but he was arguing that we need to acknowledge this category uh, that it, we need to acknowledge that this category exists and that it would help all of our funding conversations he was kind of arguing that the uh, that the way we talk about funding research today, especially in, within government and, and you know, government uh, uh, funding for, for science, that it's, you know, it, it was sort of constrained by this, uh, by this linear model that says, or, or uh, sorry, rather than the linear models, constrained by this sort of one axis, you know, flat model that says that basic versus applied are kind of opposed things and you, and you can't do both at once. Um, and you know, arguably, that we, we've gotten, or maybe taking the linear model too literally or seriously has, uh, you know, has led to this kind of model we seem to have today, where the, all the basic stuff gets done in university, and then it kind of gets, uh, I'll 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 caricature it a little bit. It kind of gets thrown over the transom, 
to industry through a process known as tech transfer, right? Which is also generally uh, considered to be kind of a, a kind of an inefficient, bureaucratic, somewhat messed up process. Um, and so we've got all these corporations who are only doing the development part, and we have all these basic, you know, researchers in university who are only doing the basic research part, and the the flow or the integration or the handoff maybe is not going well, and that this is just sort of a it's just like not the best model for funding and, and, and managing this stuff. I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? I, I think, well, what do you think the biggest research success of the past 15 years was in computer 15. science? Yeah. 15 oh, years. in computer science. Just cause that, I don't know. Cryptocurrency. I mean, that's the, that's one of the biggest <laughs> actual theoretical breakthroughs, you know, this, I mean, most of the tech, and as you know, most of the tech industry is not, is, is new product development, right? It's, it's things like social yeah. networks, which is not a technical development at all. It's completely a product development. It's, a, it's about user behavior. It's not about what can you do with software. We always knew you could, you know. Yeah. Never any doubt can you create a social network with software, right? It was, it was just a, will people use it? I mean, I, I, I mean cryptocurrency is an example. Um, recurring neural networks, what people are calling AI now. Yep. Sure. Another example. Um, a lot of the uh, self-driving car stuff. Um, I think in those cases where there was really, a, a, and not that self-driving cars or cryptocurrency have had a huge impact yet, but they certainly both had the possibility of having a huge impact and, and still do, I suppose, uh, less so cryptocurrency and more so self-driving cars. Um, but in all cases, I think there was a lot of interaction between universities and corporations, right? So Jan LeCun, who you know, kind of rediscovered neural networks and with the recurring neural network model, you know, has speaks all the time. Um, Toronto has become much more of an entrepreneurial hotbed than it was certainly when I started this business. Um, you know, the AI research is all over the place, right? Um, there's definitely been a lot of back and forth. And I think, you know, I, I think that's actually, although it's hard to see from the outside, is probably more usual than not when you have big, big change like that, like really cutting edge, leading edge stuff. Um, you know, I think if you're looking at, you know, physics or mathematics, obviously there's less so, although cryptocurrency, you can say is based a lot on mathematics. Um, but it's because, you know, it's, it's not use-based, right? The things which are, which can be used in our use-based, there's a lot of back and forth, especially when they're changing rapidly, because, you know, it's interesting when I, I was an electrical engineer um, and uh, went to college, studied electrical engineering. I wanted to design computers. I took a course on computer design. I went to work for IBM right after college. And I discovered that what I had learned in the computer design was 10 years out of date because this was, you know, before the internet or before the internet was in wide use, the textbook I had read was three years old and the person who had written it wrote it from knowledge they had three years before. And, you know, it really was really far out of date in a, in a fairly rapidly changing field, which was, you know, computer architecture. Um, so I went to work and I was like, wow, look at all these great new ideas. And there were people from universities who would come through the research lab at IBM and, and take those ideas back and then write textbooks, right? So there was always a lot of, you know, interchange. Like they, the, the professors knew that if they wanted to know really what was really at the leading edge, they had to go to the, the companies which were advancing the leading edge. Um, you know, when it came to more theoretical stuff, that was being done at the universities because the corporations weren't that interested in spending the money on the theoretical stuff that, you know, wouldn't be turned into use. Um, IBM had a great research lab back then, and there were some really amazing papers written, um, you know, about the theory of, you know, about the theory of computing. Um, 
And I remember reading a few of them being like, wow, these are incredible papers. And even today they haven't really been put to use because they were theoretical, right? So, you know, IBM spent that money. It, there was no return on investment for them there. Um, so I, I do think that the really cutting edge stuff, there still is a lot of back and forth. There is this, there, there are in this pastor's quadrant um, it's just not one person. It's not Pasteur, you know, it's a, a group, it's people going back and forth and working together. Okay. Um, this has been great. We're getting a little close to the end of the hour. So I would like to, um, shift to questions from the audience soon. Let me throw one last one at you, uh, I'm a little bit out of left field, but this is one that I, I, I asked because of the high school students in the audience. And I've asked this to a lot of our speakers. Um, yeah. what advice, uh, that is, uh, you know, commonly uh, sort of given to, to high schoolers or teenagers, do you think is actually wrong? And, uh, and what would you replace it with? <laughs> um, that's it. <laughs> I have high school students um, in, in my family and some of them going to college. Um, and I probably give them the same wrong advice that I would say <laughs> is wrong advice. Um, and, and I think a lot of the advice that teenagers are given um, is not because it's good advice. It's actually risk mitigation advice. Mm. Um, you know, maybe you should study something where you can, you know, get a job, make a living, you know, engineering say, or become a lawyer or a doctor. I mean, this is bad advice, right? And, and not that it's bad advice in and of itself, but the, a lot of the advice is geared towards mediocrity. Um, and not that mediocrity, you know, um, Mediocrity in this country is not so bad, um, but if you really want to do something, you know, better than that, you can't take the safe route, right? It's because if you take the safe route, everybody else is taking the safe route, you're competing with everybody. So it's just not going to, you know, you're, you're of average height and you want to be a professional basketball player, possible, unlikely, you know, but if you want to be the best, you know, the best curler in Alabama, well, that's probably likely. I mean, you know, it's uh, maybe not as glamorous as uh, being the best professional basketball player, but I think if you want to be outstanding, you have to do something different, right? Um, it was, it's my theory, and I've tried to tell my kids this, and I, it's sort of difficult to understand, I think, um, that you should aim to be the best in the world at what you do, no matter who you are. And what that means in practice is you have to define what you do in such a way that nobody else is doing it, right? Um, and if you do that, then you are the best in the world at what you do. And when people need somebody who do that, then they're going to call you, right? Um, it's kind of the big fish in the small pond. Um, you know, so I've defined my career in a way that there are very, there's probably five other people who do what I do. You know, here I'm a venture capitalist and there's you know, thousands of venture capitalists, but all right, but I only invest in leading edge technology companies on the verge of commercialization that are at the stage of two people and an idea, right? That narrows it down to more like 50 people. Um, and then I also, you know, make a specialty of thinking deeply about technology, which narrows it down to about five people. So now I'm a contender, right? Among those five people, <laughs> I'm a contender at being the best. And I, and I think the idea of like, you know, trying to be practical, um, that's fine. I mean, practical is great. You know, I would love my kids to go out and get a job and be happy and not have to worry about being the best in the world. Um, but if you do, I mean, if you're, if you're on this, if you're listening to this, you're probably not looking for mediocrity in your life, right? You're looking to do something special. So you need to choose something very specific where you can be the best, where you can keep growing. Um, so I didn't, all right, that's not the worst, I'm not 
telling you the worst advice you're getting. I'm just <laughs> giving you no, advice that's that great. different than what you're hearing from your parents and teachers and guidance counselors, you know, who want you to apply at the local community college. Um, you know, try to be no, great. That's, that's, that's great. Love it. Okay, great. Um, so we've just got a few minutes left. Let's, uh, I'll, I'll relay some questions from the audience. Um, so Juan David asks, how has your engineering degree helped you in business and investing? Um, I, well, <laughs> the um, cynical example is that you know, the people who I, who I invest with actually respect me more because I actually understand what they're saying, um, <laughs> which shouldn't be unusual, but sometimes is. Um, you know, I can actually, I can read the literature, I can read what they're doing, I can, you know, I could, I suppose, look at the code, although I don't. Um, but I, I think actually the way that it's helped is, uh, you know, engineering is much more about getting things done than getting it absolutely right. Um, and I don't tell your engineering professors I said that. Um, but, you know, I was talking to a friend who was a civil engineer um, right, after, uh, right after college, and I said, well, so how do you know exactly like how much concrete you need before like, you know, the, the floor of the parking garage falls in? He said, oh, well, we have software. So we put all the, everything into the software and it computes exactly how much concrete we need. And then we triple it. <laughs> triple it? He's like, yeah, you, know, you don't want the thing to fall in. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, and that's, you know, engineering is like that. You, you can make mistakes and you, you have to be resilient to the mistakes. And, and I think, um, that's how I think about investing is, you know, most of the things I invest in will not succeed. Um, you know, if I'm lucky, they won't fail, but they're not going to succeed. You know, of the 50 companies, you know, 52 companies I've invested in in the past 10 years, two of them have created 95% of my value, the value I, that, uh, you know, in the portfolio. Yep. A third of them have just failed outright. So you need to be resilient to that, right? You need to be able to say like, all right, I'm going to, you know, pour, this is how much concrete I need. I'm going to triple that. Um, and I think that mindset is very different than the sort of like, let's get the exact right answer. Cause there is yeah. no, you just don't know what the exact right answer is. Yeah. That's funny. If you, uh, I read uh, David McCullough's book on the building of the, the Brooklyn bridge and uh, uh, things were very similar back then, late 1800s, except I think they would multiply by like six instead of three. So maybe we've gotten, maybe we've gotten two, two X more accurate. Uh, <laughs> Well, you look at that bridge and you're like, yeah, that, that's going to hold for a while. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the amazing thing about it actually is um, it was built for horses and wagons, right? And, um, you know, and now it has cars and, and trains, I guess, train cars, right? But now, right. you know, cars and trucks drive over it. Um, and I don't, I can't remember. I don't think they needed to, you know, do any, at least any massive kind of like strengthening um, for motor vehicles. But Yeah. Okay. Um, question from Trey. Uh He's asking about productivity and innovation statistics, such as, for example, new business formation. Are these mismeasured? And in particular, uh, is consumer surplus today uh, much higher than in the past? Uh, reading something into this question, I think, you know, this is, this is one of the things that people talk about within kind of the stagnation hypothesis. Yeah. You know, does it look like things are slowing down really because we're just kind of increasingly mismeasuring or undermeasuring? What do you think about this? Well, you know, this is a technical question, so I hate to be too definitive on it. Um, but yeah, I definitely think so. You know, what, you know, where is the, how would you measure the productivity growth of TikTok being available, right? I mean, I don't think you could, right? I mean, it might actually even be negative in the, in the standard sense. And yet there's obviously consumer surplus there, right? Or people yep. wouldn't be using it. Um, yep. You know, same with Facebook. I mean, people, people my age tend to look at these social networks and, and say like, oh, it's just a huge waste of time. 
Is it really, I mean, is it? Because people use them. I mean, people seem to get great value out of them. So they, they must be valuable, um, even if you don't think they're valuable. Um, those people also tend to use social networks. So, and they usually complain about social networks on the social networks. But you know, there, there has to be consumer surplus there. Um, but it's not measurable in dollars necessarily. Yeah. I, 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 it just, I don't know. To me, it, it, it's clear that people are adopting new technologies because they're more valuable to them than the old technologies. Um, but they may not be more valuable in a way that's measurable in dollars. So the economic stats may be completely wrong. Um, but I, it's, yeah. it's, it's an excellent question. I, I can't give you a great answer. You know, the, uh, who was it, the Robert, so was it Solo or uh, who, who said in the 80s, uh, the, the, the um, computer revolution is evident everywhere except in the productivity stats? Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, clearly computers make us more productive. They also make us less productive, but they certainly have made our lives better. Um, you know, go home and turn your internet off and see what your family says. You know, it's obviously they want it, right? They, their lives are better with it. Um, so, you know, hard to answer though, in, in terms of like actual statistics. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So Robert Gordon, uh, who wrote the book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, and has, has talked a lot about sort of slowdown of growth. Um, you know, I mean, he points out, yes, there's a lot of unmeasured consumer surplus today. There was also a lot of unmeasured consumer surplus in the past. He gives an example, you know, penicillin comes along and it's save, is literally saving lives. And yet its contribution to GDP is just what people paid for a dose or however many doses they needed of penicillin. It's not the, you know, the surplus of, of the lives saved. So, um, yeah. but you know, I mean, I think it's, that's certainly true, but, um, it doesn't, it, it you can't say that because of that, my argument's false, right? I mean, I think at a time where, when the economy was based on producing material goods to a much larger extent than it is today, then it, it was just easier to measure because you can count the number of cars being made, um, right? So, you know, I, I think it's harder to count the surplus from people using Excel. Um, it's just hard to count, right? So I... Um, you know, that said, like, there's always the argument, like, well, you know, before Excel, people seem to get the job done without creating, you know, 30 page spreadsheets. And now they have to create the 30 page spreadsheet to get the same thing done that they would have previously done on the back of a pad. Um, so, uh, you know, does that make them more productive? You know, it, it's certainly productive in a different way, but it's, I don't know how you would measure it. Yeah, so, it's yeah, tough. It's a, hard, a hard question. It's tough. Okay, great. Um, we are about out of time, so I want to respect everybody's time and wrap up here. Sorry we didn't get to all of the questions. Uh, Jerry, if people want to follow you or read more of your writing, uh, where can they go? Actually, you know, if, if there are questions that weren't answered, you can um, just message me on Twitter or just actually tweet to me on Twitter. It's uh, just uh, at G-A Newman, N-E-U-M-A-N-N, -N, and I'll try to answer them. Um, they can You can follow my writing at reactionwheel.org, uh, which is... Um, kind of sporadic. I've been working on a book, so I've been writing less at the blog. Um, but, you know, a lot of the stuff we talked about is somewhere in the last 10 years on the blog. Um, and, uh, but I think Twitter is probably the best way to actually get a hold of me and have me answer. Got it. Uh, book is exciting. Can you tell us what it's about? It's about uncertainty. So the idea that um, one of the, the, the real, the difference between high growth potential startups and normal businesses, you know, starting a restaurant, starting a law firm, starting a consulting firm, um, is this, un this kind of ineluctable uncertainty um, in the idea. And 
know, if you're doing something that is really going to change the world and create a lot of value, you know, how can you compete with, with the incumbents, the people who have more resources? And, and the, the fact is you can't, right? If you decide to do something and Google decides to do the same thing, Google's going to beat you, right? Um, so why, why, do start, why are startups viable at all? And the answer is, well, there's some things that Google doesn't want to do because they don't really seem like great ideas, right? There's this uncertainty about whether or not they're going to happen. And this was true of Google when it started as well. Like, you know, why could they start a search engine when Yahoo was already a $100 million company with a ton of cash in the bank? And the answer is that Yahoo thought it was a stupid idea, right? Like not having advertisements everywhere. Um, so this uncertainty is basic to the startup process. But so that's, that's the kind of the, the rationale for the book. The, the book is about, well, so then what? You know, how do you manage a company if you don't, if you can't predict what's going to happen from your actions? Um, and I think startups do this all the time. Um, they clearly do it all the time. And some of them are actually do it well and are successful. And there's, there's techniques you can use to manage this uncertainty um, without trying to mitigate it. Because if you mitigate it, then, and the uncertainty goes away, you suddenly open yourself up to competition again. Um, so the, the book's about that. It's a little different for me. Um, a little bit more practical than some of the writing on the blog, which is usually wildly impractical. Um, but it's, uh, and it's a huge pain in the neck too, um, trying to write a book, but that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Sounds exciting. Um, we'll, would love to, uh, read it when it comes out and maybe we can talk again when you're uh, promoting it. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Jerry for joining us. Uh, thanks to the audience and, um, Again, you can find out more about Progress Studies for Young Scholars at progressstudies.school. Um, follow us on Twitter at Progress Course. And uh, my website is rootsofprogress.org. You can find me on Twitter at Jason Crawford. So continue the conversation there. Thank you, everybody, and have a great day. Thanks, Jason. So long.